You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. GGTMC listeners, this is Rupert. Um, this week I had the privilege of talking to Mr. Mark Edward Hoyk. Uh, he's the movie geek from the Comedy Central television show uh, Beat the Geeks. He's gone on to do a lot of really interesting uh, DVD commentaries, including uh, one for Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, which is a fantastic commentary that I can't recommend highly enough. If you want to go over to his blog, uh, Projector Has Been Drinking blogspot.com uh, I highly recommend downloading that um, we talk about some of his other commentaries in the interview and uh, just some other cool movie related stuff so uh, enjoy uh, how did you first get involved with, with Code Red um, I got involved with Code Red because uh, one of the original founders of Code Red um, uh, Walter Olson uh, he and I had been correspondents on a couple of uh, uh, film related message boards and you know, we were we had both had an extensive and arcane knowledge of film and studios and actors and release dates and such. And he had uh, helped me get in at another DVD label that he had been working at uh, where I was able to do some projects. And then ultimately when that label uh, folded, by that time he and his brother were already uh, operating Code Red and he, you know, got you know, got me onto some projects with his label. Cool. What, were, what was the stuff you'd worked on prior to that? Just out of curiosity. Um, you know, before before Code Red. Yes. Um, I well, the very first commentary I ever did was uh, for a uh, film called Men Cry Bullets by my friend uh, Tamara Hernandez. Oh, cool. uh, it's the, the DVD is very hard to come by now. It's. Uh, you know, probably selling for three figures on eBay, wow. and that was and that was a very primitively taped uh, commentary. That was basically uh, her and I on a uh, camcorder microphone watching the movie at her house. But it was something that I researched very hard, and I, I'm still kind of proud of what I did there. Um, uh, the mo- the most well-known piece of work I would have done before Code Red was uh, the commentary I did with uh, uh, Norm Hill on uh, the DVD of The Candy Snatchers with Tiffany Bowling and Susan Sennett. Oh, okay. And uh, I, I wrote uh, some bios and uh, did some other material for uh, the uh, DVDs of Dust Devil, Future Kill, um, Alice in Wonderland uh, with uh, Christine DeBell, and uh, a few others. Very cool. Very cool. Wow. Okay. So Candy Snatchers came before the Code Red stuff. Okay. Yes. And then, so, but then you did Scream for Shriek Show, right? And now that was after? Uh, Scream, well, Scream was uh, licensed by Code Red, and they owed some titles to Shriek Show from a previous arrangement, so that's why it went out through them. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, and uh, so had you been like a huge fan of that film, or how did you get involved with that particular film? Uh, I was basically kind of given the assignment because no one else wanted it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, okay, that's interesting. Well, we uh, should, that, we should uh, sorry, we should clarify this. Some of, some of the projects that I've done for Code Red have 
boiled down to the fact that, uh, you know, either no one else knew the material or knew it and didn't want it, and I was desperate for the exposure. That's cool. Well, but we should clarify right here, just because I I don't know if people should know that we're obviously talking about the 1981 film. Yeah, no, not yes. We're not talking about uh, the West Craven. Yeah, I, mean, I think they would. Me, there would be people beating down the door to work on a DVD of that film, myself <laughs> included. Yeah, no, that would be cool. I just this is the one. What's the director's name? It's Byron. How do you pronounce it? Byron Quisenberry. Quisenberry. Yes, this is one I, I personally have not seen, but have wanted to see for quite a while. Uh, so I was really excited when I found out that you have a commentary track on that disc. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm looking forward to checking that one out. Uh, Yes, it's uh, myself myself and uh, Byron uh, discussing the film. Cool, cool. Um, And then Night of the Dribbler was, where did that come? How did you, was that another one that you, were you a fan of that film? I've never heard of that film before. Uh, I had never heard of the film either. Um, Well, it had never been, it had never received any kind of public release until then. This was a film that uh, Fred Travelina made in Canada in the early 90s uh, for a uh, producer and the film was ultimately never released, but then uh, Code Red made a package deal with that producer, and Night of the Dribbler was in the package, so they decided to try and maximize what they had, and you know, Fred hadn't uh, done a lot of uh, public work in that time, and he jumped at the chance to uh, do commentary, and we brought in uh, Scott Spiegel, who uh, produced Hostel and uh, the Evil Dead films, and is just kind of a fun, goofy guy on his own, and put the three of us in the studio. That's cool. Wait, Scott Spiegel directed, what's his slasher movie? I'm blanking. I, I believe it was uh, Thou Shalt Not Don't Accept. Oh, okay, okay. What am I thinking of? What's the film, and maybe it's not Spiegel, but it's uh, the sh- it's a supermarket slasher uh, oh, Intruder. Intruder, that's what I was trying to think of. That's not Spiegel, right? That's somebody else? That, that is Spiegel. Oh, it is Spiegel. Okay. That's a great little movie. I, For some reason, whenever I hear his name, that's the movie I think of. Um, obviously, he did some other stuff after that that he's quite well known for. Well, he did the uh, film uh, My Name is Modesty that was uh, loosely produced by Quentin Tarantino, although uh, nobody actually wants you to see the film. I mean, it's it's commercially available, but uh, what? But it's a funny story. There, what basically happened is Miramax optioned uh, the rights to uh, Modesty Blaze, hoping that Quentin or one of his pals would do it, and the rights were about to expire unless a film was done. So they contacted Spiegel to quickly go to Romania and direct a film that would allow them to hold the rights for another few years. Wow. Now this is there was there was a film made in the '60s, right? With uh, what's oh yeah, the, the character dates back to the '60s. Yeah, I remember there seeing was a, sorry, a, go ahead. a big budget feature film direct, uh, directed by Joseph Losey, uh, starring Monica Monica Vitti. Vitti. Oh, Yeah, that's right. And then there was a TV pilot in the '80s uh, starring uh, Anne Turkell, who at the time was married to Richard Harris. Uh, okay, see, I'd never heard of that one. I, I think I might have had the. The DVD of the '60s version, which I never watched. Now, was that is that film any good? Just out of curiosity. Um, I haven't seen the film either, okay. so I can't pass judgment on it. <laughs> That's cool. Uh, and if you pay close attention, uh, uh, John Travolta is yeah. reading a book of Modesty Blaze in the restroom during the uh, restaurant holdup in uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I remember that. I remember pausing my VHS tape at one point uh, when I was obsessed with Quentin. I mean, I still. You know, pay close attention to anything that he uh, endorses as far as older films. 
But, you know, at that time, I was like, well, what's what's going on in the background here? What are all these posters at uh, Jackrabbit Slims? And which now, I finally got to see now that the Blu-ray uh, for Pulp Fiction is out. I couldn't really always tell what everything was on the other DVD release. But anyway, uh, but yeah, I was always curious about Modesty Blaze based on that. I hadn't heard of it until Pulp Fiction. So so now the film that Spiegel made is is... It's it's commercially available, but but it's not being promoted at all. It's not being right. It, it's because again, the the entire reason it was made was so that they could you know hold on to the property for another few years. Oh, okay. Um, you know, so that they could possibly do a better, bigger budgeted version later on. Now, I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but the, so I mean, they did finally put it out on DVD to you know try and you know get some in revenue out of it, but every, everybody involved will probably agree that um, it's, I don't want to say a bad film because I have not seen it, sure. but that it is probably not the best representation of Modesty Blaze. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, now, I know that there you're working on some newer stuff for Code Red, um, and I know that there's some stuff that you can't talk about, but... Uh, what are some of the things, and, and I, I already know some of these, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that some of the listeners to this podcast will be interested. What's, uh, what do you have coming up that's coming out from them? Well, something fun uh, that I did, uh, I got to together with uh, my cohorts from uh, the TV show, uh, Paul Goebel and J. Keith Van Stratton, and we taped a comedy commentary for the 70s film Horror High. <laughs> AKA Twisted Brain, which is a film a lot of people have been waiting for on DVD, and it is going to be the original R rated cut of the film. It's not going to be the TV cut that has been circulating on tape and DVD for so many years. Oh, very cool. I've never I've never heard of that film, never seen that film, and I'm, it's instantly one that I'm going to purchase as soon as it comes it, out. It's, uh, it was shot in Texas. Uh, there was a, uh, a large amount of exploitation filmmaking going on in Texas from uh, the mid-60s onward. Uh, one of my friends, uh, David Shulkin, who works at Grindhouse Releasing, has been working on a book about uh, Texas exploitation for many years, and with any luck, it'll get published in this year or next. Uh, he's tracked down a lot of people, um, and in conjunction with that, uh, Grindhouse is uh, putting out one of uh, the better uh, Texas exploitationers, uh, Scum of the Earth, directed by S.F. Brownrigg, who also directed uh, Don't Look in the Basement, which is currently being remade with Kelly Maroney. Oh, I did not know that. Wow. <laughs> Fantastic. That's, that's great. Um, can you talk about The Visitor at all? Is that... I, uh, yeah, I got to do a uh, commentary with uh, Joanne Nail on that one, and that was exciting for me because I've I've been a huge fan of uh, Switchblade Sisters uh, since I was just out of college, and uh, I'd actually met Joanne a couple of times uh, previous at various screenings, and I did. I, in fact, I got to do Q and A with Joanne at an LA screening of The Visitor back in I think 2005 Fantastic. or possibly 2006. But you know the dates begin to blur. But we had a great we had a great time then. And then when the, the opportunity came to revisit the film, uh, I was excited and. Uh, Joanne liked me and agreed to sit with me. Excellent. 
Um, uh, how would you like? I've seen the film, and I think it's pretty fantastic. Uh, how would you, de- if you had to describe it to people, or how have you been describing it for those that haven't seen it? Um, uh, the visitor is essentially a hodgepodge of every hot button exploitation topic <laughs> of the seventies, in that it involves uh, the demonic possession, uh, t- uh, uh, telepathic activity, um, space. It started off essentially as kind of a big budget uh, sequel to Beyond the Door because they had the same producer of Video Asinitis. And gradually, as more stars came on board and with the success of stuff like Star Wars and Close Encounters, he shifted the focus of the film and turned it into uh, more of uh, a science fiction bent than a horror bent. I mean, it's one of those movies, I think I first saw it in the holy fucking shit section at Cinephile Video, and, uh, I mean, for me, that has always been, when pe- if somebody wants me to sort of qualify what that section is about, uh, that's that's a movie I think, it's just, it's pretty batshit crazy, and, and so I, I often use that one. I'm like, if you want to know what this section's about, watch this movie, because it really personifies it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um... Uh, how did you? I know you're. You've been a fan of, ladies and gentlemen, uh, the fabulous stains for a long time. You've got a great commentary track that people can download from your your blog. Uh, the projector has been drinking. Um, now, how did that originate, and 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 how were you involved in the release of the film? Well, um, I have been lobbying. Uh, for literally decades to get, uh, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains released on home video in any format because up until uh, 2008, it was not available in any fashion. There, there was never a tape. There was never a laser disc, and not just in the States. I mean overseas, just nowhere. You were stuck with whatever bootlegs you could find. And I had been uh, repeatedly petitioning uh, Paramount to to try and revisit it, and I, I, occasionally there'd be interest, and then it would die down when that person left the company and new people came in at the home video division. And then I had been out of the loop for a while, and apparently Rhino made the deal to sublicense the film from Paramount because they had a long-standing relationship with uh, director Lou Adler by because they currently handle his music catalog on CD, the stuff like uh, the Cheech and Chong records and other things he had produced. And so they had gotten the film, and I found out about it like two-thirds of the way before the the film was due to be released. So I basically (laughs) ambushed the poor rhino people (laughs) who had no idea of my activity. Uh, And Got, basically got an audition with them and had to throw this track together at, uh, before I went into their office. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, it's... Well, that's crazy. I, I paid for this uh, on my own dime. Wow. Uh, I, I called in a favor from uh, Code Red, who let me uh, use the facility that they do their commentaries at, and at their price. Because they, you know, they had a deal with the studio, and but if me as a civilian would have been charged more, but I got it at their price. Wow! So, so I basically, you know, rolled the dice on hoping that they would like this commentary and put it on the DVD. 
It's such a great commentary. I, I can't recommend people enough that people check it out um, from your Yeah, blog. well, we have to stress the fact that the commentary is not on the DVD. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to touch on that. I don't know how far into that you want to go, but, but uh, I mean, can you talk about why it's not on the DVD? It boils down to the fact that uh, I started talking to Rhino in May of 2008, and the disc was locked into a release of September 2008 because there were going to be articles in Spin Magazine and such, and so they could not move that date. You know, it had to come out in September, and there you, uh, most companies like to have their discs finished at least uh, a month or two months before street dates so that if there are any lap any last-minute changes that need to be done, spelling mistakes or what have you, that they're done and that they're pressed, ready to go to the distributors and such. So essentially, there was not a lot of time. And in a nutshell, the legal department at Paramount would not clear what I had said, that that I had done what I thought was a good job of pre-censoring myself to not say anything inflammatory because you don't really know what studios are going to get upset about. Yeah. Because uh, you've probably seen, like, uh, there was the time when uh, when the South Park series was based at Warner Brothers, not at Paramount, uh, Warner Brothers uh, removed commentary tracks that, Parker and Stone had recorded for the first season of South Park because of disparaging comments they made about Contact, which was a Warner Brothers film. <laughs> um, or uh, in, in there are many circumstances where, if just for whatever reason, the studio objects to what you said and either will suppress the commentary or will edit it out. Wow. And so. Even though Rhino was doing the DVD, Paramount had to approve anything and everything that Rhino wanted to do. And the legal department basically went through my commentary and said, there are too many things that we have to fact check uh, before we can put this on the DVD, and we don't have the time to fact check it. Ah, oh, that's just terrible. That's such a bummer because, I mean, I'm sure there are more stories like this, you know, where... That the legal department, uh, well, I know for a fact that, you know, I, I'd done an interview with Joe Dante and talked to him about matinee and the problems he had with that disc coming out and even finding out about it online before it was, you know, he had been sort of petitioning Universal to put it out. And, but just the, the legal issues he ran into, I mean, it's just terrible. Unfortunately, we're such uh, a litigious society now that we can't even allow these commentaries which are for entertainment purposes only that's on all of them you know to, to go through there's always got to be a hang up on something like this it's such a bummer well uh, if there if there is any upside to the story it's the fact that had they decided to buy the commentary there is a chance that my my words would have been edited and they could have taken stuff out that I didn't want taken. So True. as much as I'm upset that it's not on the finished DVD, 
the commentary is mine and it is uncensored and anybody who wants it can download it. Yeah, no, that's great. I mean, that's really cool that you paid for it yourself too. I mean, that's quite a test. I don't. I'm not crazy about losing the money. <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, it's a it's a, it's but, a great you know, testament. It's tax deductible. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, it's a great testament to your uh, passion for the film, which you really go into in that commentary, and it really comes through. It's it's just like. Like uh, one of the better commentaries I've heard in a, in a while, and I, I just think that there's not a lot of great commentaries out there, except from maybe um, you know more niche uh, labels that put DVDs out. You, you get some good stuff from those people still, but it's just it's it's a wasteland as far as I'm concerned for a lot of commentaries, and even ones that I look forward to sometimes end up not working out. You know, so a good commentary is is not easy to come by these days. So I was very impressed. Um, I was going to say, you, uh, you you posted on your blog real recently uh, another movie that you're a big fan of, I guess, is uh, Suspiria. Um, and uh, you had talked about um, seeing this movie at something called the... Uh, well, uh, let me explain before you start you know, enticing people uh, with something that unfortunately is no longer active. That's what I, that's what I was afraid of. That's what I was afraid of. Um, um, when I was when I was in college uh, at uh, the Ohio State University, uh, a near a nearby theater organization ha- uh, started a 24-hour science fiction film marathon in the spring, which I began to heavily attend. Nice. And after about a couple years of success with uh, the 24-hour science fiction marathon, they decided they start a 24-hour horror marathon around October. And when I went to that first event, that's when I, I finally got to see Suspiria for the first time because at that at that point in history, that also was not commercially available in the United States on home video. Uh, and the, the cable airings had stopped by that time. Uh, what I was going to say is the the 24-hour science fiction marathon continues to this day in Columbus, but the horror marathon has kind of come and gone. It's been it's been revived, but not 24 hours, and the location has moved and as and such. But uh, so that, that kind of answers that story in a roundabout fashion. Well, absolutely. Have you heard of such a or or tried to spearhead the um, such a marathon in in the Los Angeles area or? Um, myself, no. But uh, there have been plenty of people who are doing um, equally. Uh, exciting events. Uh, Phil Blankenship, who uh, programs the Saturday midnight shows at uh, the New Beverly in Los Angeles for the last couple of years, has done a uh, kind of an all-nighter horror marathon. It's not quite 24 hours, but it starts early around like 8 in the evening and will go till sunrise, and he shows uh, some terrific stuff there. Uh, the Both of the, the American Cinematheques uh, in uh, Hollywood and Santa Monica have done uh, similar events on Halloween weekend. Again, you know, none, you know, none of them have are quite ready to go 24 hours, but it, it is a kind of a grueling deal <laughs> to ask people to do. So It's true, it's true. I don't know that I could actually have the staying power personally at this point. But um, it's it's just interesting that that it uh, that I hadn't heard of one in L.A. But you're right; I totally forgot about Phil. I, Phil's fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. I love what he does, and uh, I, I I've mentioned this before. I'm, I'm trying to get an interview with him at some point. I don't know if he'll want to do one, but um, 
but I'm really looking forward to, he's doing some programming, I'm sure you already knew that, but uh, starting, I think, next week, right? I think... Uh, I Well, yes, in addition to uh, his uh, midnight programming at the New Beverly, uh, this is the second year in a row he's uh, done this, uh, kind of out of, you know, out of respect and gratitude for... Uh, the new audiences he's brought into the new Bev. Uh, one, once a year during June, around the time of his birthday, he gets to program the theater for an entire week, and so he's put together a different double and or triple feature each night, and uh, it's, it, there's a lot of fun programming in that week. Yeah. I, I know for, personally uh, he had mentioned to me about the Jim Wynorski triple uh, yes, a couple uh, months Lost ago. Lost Empire, Chopping Mall, and Demolition High. Yeah, I'm very excited for that. And I, I, I live a little ways from the city, so I don't get in as much as I'd like. But that's one that I basically have blocked off. I think that's – oh, my gosh. I think that's next Saturday. Okay, June 6th, I'm pretty sure, is the date on that one, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So i got to remember to do that. But that's – I was really excited to see that he – uh, was getting that week because uh, he he's a guy that I respect a lot and I'm very excited about all his midnight shows though I'm not often able to go I, I, I assume you're a pretty regular attendee at the uh, at the new Bev uh, yes I am that's cool um, okay well uh, let me move into the oh no wait I had some I had a couple more things about Suspiria I, I in your blog post um, well, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, have you ever thought of, I mean, obviously not on the level that you did for Ladies and Gentlemen the Fabulous Stains, where you went and recorded it professionally, would you ever consider doing a commentary for a movie like Suspiria that it seems to have affected you quite a bit? Well, see, I don't know if I'd have as much to say, mm -hmm. because, well, part of the reason that I was able to do such a detailed commentary on Stains was that over the years I had built up a, a decent friendship with uh, Nancy Dowd, who was the original screenwriter of the film before she took her name off of it, and as a result I had access to materials that only she had. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and in the case of Suspiria, I, you know, I, don't, I don't really have any new insights that I can provide because I've never had access to any of the people involved in the film. Gotcha. Uh, and also, um, as much as I like the film, I haven't really been drawn to talk about it at length, mainly because um, there are better writers like Tim Lucas who and Maitland McDonough who have studied Dario Argento for years and have interviewed him and you know ha and have been written tremendous things about him and the film whereas there at when I did Stains there was not a whole lot of material out there so I figured okay that's the film that needs my attention yeah no that makes sense that, that... Uh, there is a, there is a fellow there is a fellow named Michael McKenzie who did uh, produce his own uh, commentary on uh, Suspiria that is available for download on the web that I, I do recommend uh, checking out. Oh, I will definitely check that out. Um, well, okay, two things. One, uh, can you talk about Cry Hard? Because I think the listeners would like to hear <laughs> oh about God. Cry Hard. Yeah. 
Oh, well, well, see, we're basically telling them everything that's at the blog, so now they don't have to read. No, it. no, no. They just they, there's a lot of great stuff in the entry before we've talked about the where you saw it. I, I love that entry. I really thought it was great. And if you want, we can leave Cryhard for them to read about. But uh, I thought that was just a great little enticing. Okay. Well, bit. in in brief, uh, as I was completing my college education, my two favorite movies were Suspiria and Die Hard. And as <laughs> I, I was finishing up, each of them had had one sequel each. And you know, there were there were just enough synchronicities between Suspiria and Die Hard that I looked upon them as having a similarity. So, you know, in one of in one of my uh, drunken pieces of inspiration, I had thought that uh, the two franchises should be united into one super threequel, where because uh, at the time uh, Inferno, which is the second part of the Three Mothers trilogy, uh, had been made, but it had not been a success, and there it did not it did not seem likely that the third installment was ever going to get made. But everyone figured after Die Hard two there was going to be another Die Hard. So I thought, okay, well, if we put the franchises together, and essentially came up with this misbegotten uh, abomination of. Uh, a movie idea where uh, Bruce Willis uh, goes to Rome and ultimately winds up having to take on Mater Lacrimartum <laughs> and it was going to be called Cry Hard oh. because Mater Lacrimartum is the mother of tears. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Alright, I'll stop I'll stop there and, and I definitely recommend people go check out your blog and read the rest of that post and, and the posts previous to that, which are all great. I'm a huge fan of your blog. Uh, I definitely want to plug that and have people go look at your blog. Cause, uh, well, we, well, let, well, let's give them the address. It's uh, projectorhasbeendrinking.blogspot.com. Yep, yep, absolutely. Please go check it out because it's, it's uh, one that I check out regularly uh, with, with each new post. Um, so, uh, okay, I'll move into the, the sort of other part of the, the interview here um, where I started asking you some of these other questions. Um, what, uh, what are some of your earliest genre film memories? Well, um, my earliest genre film memories are not so much uh, seeing films as seeing their advertising because uh. I was a film-obsessed kid from, like, the uh, fourth grade on, and I voraciously collected uh, the Friday newspaper ads and... You know, just loved to to look through them. And at the time, I wasn't into exploitation films. I had been getting my film education from uh, both this wonderful repertory theater in Cincinnati, which is no longer around, and from uh, Siskel and Ebert's At the Movies on PBS. So... Um, and it was a great education, but at, at the time, they were not high on exploitation films, and I wanted to be cool and grown up and adult, so I kind of took an anti-exploitation stance. But yet at the same time, I loved the, the, the crazy word advertising, and I specifically remember the fact that almost every year for like five years straight, the same triple bill came into Cincinnati and hit the drive-ins, which was uh, last house on the left, don't look in the basement, and don't open a window. And I never got to see them, even after uh, once my father got cable and my friends got cable, I began to loosen up 
on uh, the explo- on the exploitation fair because you know you you've got you've got to see naked women and stuff. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, I would say probably the first uh, the first exploitation film I got exposed to via cable, and this was just like catching the last ten minutes when I was in middle school, was Black Christmas, and again. Hadn't come out of my you know anti slasher stance, but I remember the the incessant phone ringing over the credits and just oh my god what is this and you know that unnerved me. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good one. That film definitely gets your attention. I mean, so did that spawn any sort of uh, fascination? Oh, yeah, I mean, you know, I was also picking up Fangoria at the newsstand cool. regularly and thumbing through it and. And that and that kind of got me over kind of my fear of watching horror films because you know they showed how all the effects were done. So you know if I saw someone getting stabbed in the gut and blood coming out, I knew oh, okay that's a squib and you know this is a, you know skin and such. And so I would be able to relax a little. You know I still get a little squeamish at certain films like uh, I I saw the Human Centipede and the last two thirds I kind of was filtering through my fingers or as Rich Hall's uh, Book of Sniglets would describe it, snarling. <laughs> that's great. Um, <laughs> well, that's yeah. cool. I still haven't seen Human Centipede. I'm a little, I'm not, I don't know, squeamish is maybe the, I'm not usually squeamish personally, but something about that. Uh, uh, I've heard it's interesting with the crowd. I assume that the crowd was maybe... It, 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 it lends itself to a crowd dynamic. Okay. It's not quite as much fu- uh, fun to watch by yourself. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's fair. I've heard that. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, um, but, but yes, uh, I would say kind of a big turning point, I mean, as I wrote in the blog, Suspiria is my big turning point, but an earlier turning point was my 17th birthday when a bunch of unsuspecting friends of mine came over to uh, my father's house and we watched Stuart Gordon's Reanimator. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, that's one, wow, that's funny. I'm... That, that one was a big revelation to myself and everybody in the room. Yeah, I told you. Know, there, there, there are still people who, to this day, tell me how scarred they are from <laughs> that experience. Now, what what made you choose that on your birthday to, to watch that film? Well, uh, I had been reading about it in Fangoria, gotcha. and uh, I was I was uh, an H.P. Lovecraft fan, and and Ooh. it looked like it was going to be both uh, entertaining and sick. <laughs> Which it was. Yeah, I was gonna say, and you were not let down. That's that's no. great. Very cool. Well, that's great. No, that's those are great. see. It's funny because I was thinking I had a similar thing with Evil Dead Two, but Reanimator. I just realized I had seen around the same time and had the same impact that you're talking about. That's a real gateway movie uh, of a certain uh, person of a certain age. Um, well, I, I just totally forgotten about it. You totally brought all that back. That's cool. Um, so along the lines of of this sort of first movies and maybe movies that you saw when you were uh, younger or maybe, you know, more recently, is do you have any movies that are sort of holy grail? I mean, you obviously, Fabulous Stains was one of these movies for you um, that you'd like to see come out on uh, DVD that, that hasn't come out? Uh, there are quite a few movies that I would like to see on DVD that, uh, unfortunately, in the current climate, I doubt will ever uh, get released for uh, various ridiculous reasons. Uh, the, the, the biggest one is uh, Hell's a Poppin'. Oh, yes. 
which is a terrific uh, early 40s uh, comedy by uh, Ole Olson and uh, Chick Johnson, uh, uh, loosely, very loosely based on a stage play that they had done on Broadway, which is one of the reasons why it's been gone from television and all media for years, because the underlying stage rights need to be re-cleared and uh, universal figures that no one remembers who Olson and Johnson are, so you know, they're not going to make the money back that it would cost to pay uh, the Neverlander organization for the rights back to the property. Uh, but it is one one of the most hilarious uh, films I've ever seen, because lots of movies break the fourth wall, and I think this one breaks a fifth and a sixth <laughs> wall as well. Yeah, it is It is a film I've seen and that I'm a fan of, and I would highly recommend people seek it out. Uh, unfortunately, it won't be the best quality, but it needs to be seen. I mean, it is, it's not like any other film I've seen, you know. It's, it's, it's right, that there, there are people who... Uh, there are comedy directors to this day who feel like they're being innovative with some of the tricks they're doing, and they don't realize that they were done in Hell's Poppin' <laughs> because they've probably never gotten to see it. So, I mean, it's not, I'm not going to accuse anybody of stealing because how can you steal from a movie you never saw? But the point is, is that even all the way back in the 40s, there were a couple of crazy guys who were really using their noodle to figure out how to make you laugh. Yeah. I mean, how would you, have that, has that another one? I'm, I'm curious, like, how um, you would describe that film, again, to, to someone that hasn't seen it. Like, <laughs> it's pretty hard to, to encapsulate, I guess, in some ways. Well, um, essentially that it's uh, taking your, your, sta your standard uh, y uh, young lover's farce and then taking the comic relief characters and making them the leads. <laughs> No, that's a good. Wow, very well done. Yeah, no, that makes sense. As you, when you put it like that, yeah, it's a great movie. That's a really good pick. I, what else is on your list? Like, I'm now that you've trotted this one out. I want to hear. Do you have other ones like that? Um, well, a lot of a lot of the other ones are not that as, as distinguished as Hell's a Poppin'. They're most they mostly boil down to the fact that they have extensive uh, song cues that would be very expensive to clear because um, I think I don't know how many interviews you've done or how many listeners you have, but I think we can all agree that the only people who are bigger money-grubbing scum than a Hollywood movie people are record industry people. <laughs> No, it's it's unfortunate because that has delayed or killed the release of many a film that I would love to see, and it's just a crime. It just it kills me. Uh, and uh, the, the the most uh, I think, and it's not really fair to use this one because it is available uh, overseas. It's just not available in America, so you, you could kind of get it, but it's the, the overseas version is kind of bare bones and doesn't have any supplements. And it's, I think, one of uh, the better uh, m movies about rock and roll ever made, which is Stardust uh, by uh, Michael Apted. Oh. And uh, Stardust was conceived as a quasi-sequel to an earlier film by Claude Watham called That'll Be the Day. Uh, both films starred David Essex, who you know had that big hit single, uh, Rock On. Uh, That'll Be the Day was a, a thinly veiled uh Romantic play about John Lennon, about a rock star with an, with uh, an absent father who you know 
discovers his calling, becomes a musician, starts achieving a, a notion of fame, and then eventually starts repeating all of his father's mistakes. Um, uh, Ringo Starr has a small role in yeah. uh, That'll Be the Day, and that that is commercially available in the States. Uh, Stardust was a sequel, but it's also kind of a standalone movie in that you don't have to have seen That'll Be the Day to get Stardust. It kind of starts at about where That'll Be the Day left, and it and it tells like the tra- the kind of the typical tragic trajectory of a rock star, that it starts from supporting guy in a band to new leader of a band to solo artist to pretentious solo artist <laughs> to drug-addled recluse. Oh, nice. that, um, the ad campaigns in the 70s uh, were saying this is not the story of Jim Morrison or Janis Joplin, but it could be. <laughs> wow. And more importantly, Stardust is almost the perfect film to tell the story of Michael Jackson. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it, it, I mean, if you want, if you wanted to try and get inside the head of Michael Jackson, you could do worse than watch Stardust. Cool. It, it just covers all the beats. And it's, it, 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 it's the Godfather part two of <laughs> rock and roll dramas. Oh, that's you know, fantastic. Because it's, it, because it's the sequel that eclipses the original. But again, it has a huge rock and roll song score, including Beatles music, Ooh. and uh, is not going to be seen on American DVD anytime soon. And, and, the, and the soundtrack is intact on that uh, import version? Yes. Okay. Uh, it, it basically boils down to the fact that uh, different people own it in different territories, and in the UK, uh, the, the copyright holder there sprung for the music, and the copyright owner in America won't. Yeah. Wow. That's. Uh, there are a couple others like that where there's a music rights issue that's holding back the movie that you. Uh, well, ironically, uh, two other uh, Paramount movies because. Uh, I, when Rhino set up their deal with Paramount to release Fabulous Stains, because that had been held off for years because of music clearances, yeah. uh, the hope was that uh, a relationship would be established that a couple of their other prime uh, music-based films could be released. And uh, between the poor sales of uh, Stains and the general air of the DVD market in general, plus... Uh, Unfortunately, the people who I worked with on the Stains project got sacked. Um, it's not going to happen. But uh, Paramount has two other films from within the same five-year period. Uh, one is American Hot Wax by oh, Floyd yeah. Mutrix about uh, Alan Freed and uh, his kind of uh, last great stand as a rock and roll DJ. That's a um, that's a great movie. It's another one I'm a big fan of. Yeah, it has uh, with uh, Tim McIntyre as Alan Freed and uh, Lorraine Newman is kind of a thin, a thinly veiled Carol King, and uh, actual performances by Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis and Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Uh, the bizarre thing about American Hot Wax is that it has never gotten an actual home video release by Paramount. However, um, in the early days of VHS, before the major studios started offering their movies on VHS and beta, Photomat, and I'll have to explain this because probably most listeners to your podcast have no idea what Photomat is. I don't think so. Uh, before we had one-hour photo places, before you had 
digital photos, you would have these little kiosks in oh. shopping mall parking lots and supermarket lots. Uh, it was a big national chain, and they did photo processing. You, you you drove in, you dropped off your film, and then about three days to a week later, you picked it up. You know, they you know it was the, the kiosks were just collection stations. They sent everything to a huge lab and then mailed it back. Yeah, <laughs> I can't believe I have to explain Photomat to someone. Well, no, no, yeah. I, you know what? I, I remember those now, and, and I think most famously from Back to the Future, when I think Marty McFly crashes through one while he's being per- pursued by the uh, mm-hmm. Libyans. Anyway, right. or or uh, you know, most people. The only reason anyone still knows Photomat is if they're looking at old. Uh, concert footage of Robin Williams or Eddie Murphy, each of them doing a gag where they use an audience member's camera to photograph their crotch, and he's like, well, let's hear you explain that one at Photomat. That's right. I, t- oh, I totally remember that, too. Anyway, yeah, you're right. Anyhow, Photomat got into the video rental business before the studios did, and they licensed a bunch of movies from Paramount. Now, most of them got released by Paramount themselves, but there are a weird few that for whatever reason, Photomat offered them for rent, but Paramount never released them, and American Hot Wax is one of those movies. Also, at the the, the, the Disc War competition, because everyone knows about Laserdisc, because that was the predecessor to DVD in terms of picture quality and supplements, but when Laserdisc started, RCA started a rival disc format called CED, which had a needle and groove system kind of like a record. And initially, the CED format was beating Laserdisc because it had more licensing deals. And again, Paramount licensed American Hot Wax for CED, but never for Laserdisc. So there are old versions of American Hot Wax floating around, like the old Photomap tape probably goes for like $300 on the collector's market. But... It, they've never given it a proper home video release because of the music clearances. Uh, the the little-known fact is at the dawn of VHS, all these studios started putting their movies out without realizing that uh, the music needed clearing because the contracts didn't cover home video. Oh, wow. And then, so a lot of these tapes had to be recalled or okay. reissued, and that's why a lot in the 90s you'd have these tapes where the music was rescored, and yeah. the John Hughes movies would lose all of their great song scores and have all this generic replacement music put in. And it's only been in the era of DVD where the studios are beginning to spend the money now to re-clear the original songs. Again, see, the, it's this terrible tug of war because the, the record companies think, well, you know, our music's in there, you got to pay us or you got no movie, and then the studios go to the record companies and say, screw you, we're not going to release the movie, or fuck that, we'll put in uh, you know, generic music and replace it. Yeah. Because they, they still do that on some occasions, unfortunately. Yeah, I heard about that most recently, um, California Split, I think. Well, was- California Split is a really terrible instance where uh, that was held off of home video for years because of music rights. But the thing is, it's not about recordings, it's about performances. Oh. Because remember, music rights are twofold. There's the needle drop rights, which are for songs, you know, recordings of songs, and then there's the publishing rights for the actual songwriters. 
And in California Split, Elliot Gould and George Siegel are constantly, you know, going around humming songs to themselves, you know, little snatches of them. And so when California Split was released, without telling anybody, Columbia, or I should say Sony, um, <laughs> the evil empire, uh, basically just cut all of the little snippets of singing that Siegel and Gould have in the movie. Ah, oh, damn it. Um, and I don't even think Altman knew about it. The only change Altman knew was that there's one scene in the movie where uh, they go to a poker game and the music video cartoon for Basketball Jones by Cheech and Chong is on TV. And they wiped the song from there and they told Altman about that and he was, uh, okay, if it'll get the movie on DVD, I can lose Cheech and Chong. Yeah. But they didn't tell him that they were going to cut all of the other singing instances. Oh, now, man. the DVD is out of print, and there's a vain hope that maybe, you know, now that Sony has a licensing deal with Criterion, that maybe Criterion will go back and put all of it in and contribute to the cost of licensing. I hope so. I, I heard a weird rumor that the Netflix streaming version of the movie was uncut? Did, is that true? Uh, yes. Um, the, the rules for streaming video, I guess, because it's a per-viewer, uh, that, that the fees for licensing music for streaming video are much lower because... You know, it's like a one one at a time basis that you know, they can log, you know, how many times each person has, you know, watched the film, and then they can calculate how much they got to pay. Whereas if you're doing a DVD, chances are you're pressing like what, you know, yeah. five thousand, ten thousand at once, and so you got to pay a big thing up front. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, and so, so on a lot of streaming movies, you know, that you can get by a digital download, oftentimes the music is intact because it's not as big a hit to the studios. It's like uh, it's probably the difference between paying you a know, dollar for each download of California Split back to the publishing company versus paying five thousand dollars in order to press five thousand discs of uh, California Split. Yeah, that makes sense. That's an estimate. The money's probably much higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you were gonna. I'm sorry, I, I interrupted there. You, so you're saying Paramount has American Hot Wax was one, and there was some others. Uh, there's another one uh, called Breaking Glass. Uh, oh yes, I was going to ask you about this one. Cool. Uh, Breaking Glass uh, was directed by Brian Gibson, who his, his most well-known film is, ironically, another music-based uh, film, uh, the Tina Turner biopic, What's Love Got to Do With It, with Angela Bassett. Uh, Brian, uh, Breaking Glass is a British-made film uh, produced by Dodie Fayette, uh, the lover of Princess Di, who perished in a car wreck with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, it's very similar to, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, in that it is about a, a punk rock chick who puts together a band, the band uh, starts becoming famous, and then she starts getting uh, eaten by the system that she's been trying to rebel against, and by the, and by the end of the film, she's been corrupted by everybody that she's been trying to rebel against. This one really fascinates me. I'd love to... Uh, uh, well, there's... again, uh, Breaking Glass received a DVD release overseas because different people own the movie. Okay. And uh, that, unfortunately, is out of print. <sighs> Damn. Uh, so it's still kind of hard to come by. But 
Um, yeah, Paramount is probably not going to release it anytime soon. Uh, and the interesting thing is uh, Paramount altered the ending of the film, which is something I go into in my commentary track for The Stains, because The Stains ending was also altered from uh, the original intentions of the screenwriter, which is one of the reasons why Nancy has taken her name off of it. Oh, but, okay. Uh, so if, if you get the UK DVD of Breaking Glass, it's going to have a different ending than if you, say, got a hold of the old Paramount VHS tape of Breaking Glass. So now the UK version would probably be the superior, uh, more true to the filmmakers? Ending. Well, it's I wouldn't say it's superior because both endings are tragic. Okay. It, it's that it's one, one goes further. Oh, okay. Uh, I mean, w- w- without, without yeah. going... Without going too heavily into spoilers, um, one, uh, the U.S. version basically just ends with corruption, and the U.K. version ends with breakdown. Oh, wow. Okay, I see what you're saying. Well, that's what I'm going to have to look for in whatever way that I can, because um, I, I, I saw, at somewhere I saw it online that you were a fan of that one, too, and I really wanted to, I'd never heard of it, and so I really need to see it. Yes, uh, it features a great uh, early appearance by uh, Jonathan Price. Oh, very cool. And he plays uh, a uh, uh, gen- uh, gentle saxophone player who's also a raging heroin addict. Wow, that's not like any other role that I know of for him. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Um, okay, well, let me... let me. So this is... We may have sort of covered this already, but this is more... This next question is more to do with films that maybe you, you haven't seen. And I don't, I don't know if there's too many that you want to see that you haven't seen, but this idea of a Holy Grail film that is maybe it's not available, it doesn't screen very much. I feel like you're the kind of guy that probably has found or seen the, any film that you really want to. But is there anything left that you really want to see that, that you haven't seen? Well, uh, well, first off, I generally consider myself a wide-open individual in that I mean, I may not necessarily be in the mood to see certain things at certain times, but uh, that I'm always open to watching something. You know, I, I, I'm I'm of the mentality that I don't want to go to this movie on my own time and on my own money, but if, like, I got two or three friends who, hey, we're going to go to this, do you want to come? It'll be like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> um, and... Um, there, well, first off, there are just there are lots of gaps in my film knowledge. Uh, I, you know, I'm ashamed to admit that on a lot of films, I'm more book smart than I am actual viewing smart. So uh, there are plenty of things that I need to see in order to properly be a a movie geek. <laughs> uh, as far as Holy Grail's uh, stuff that I haven't been able to see and probably will not be able to see. Um, well, you know, they found that you know they found that missing Metropolis footage in Argentina, and I'm really hoping that maybe they start combing the archives in the rest of South America, and that maybe we finally find that missing footage from uh, uh, Eric von Stroheim's Greed and oh, uh, yeah. the Magnificent Ambersons. I was just going to say Ambersons. You know, it's probably not going to happen, but I think a, a longer version of Greed, even longer than the. Uh, restoration that Rick Schmidlin put together for Turner Classic Movies, that would probably be my holy grail up front. Um, well, that's cool. Then, then, there, then there are just these uh, films of 
uh, you know, these weird uh, little things where not that they're any good, but they just intrigue me. Like uh, there's there's this uh, late 60s uh, psychedelic um, mystery called Microscopic Liquid Subway to Oblivion, <laughs> which uh, I think I want to say it has uh, it has. Oh, Ava Owlin from uh, Candy, the uh, all-star uh, sex romp uh, written by Terry Southern. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, Microscopic Liquid Subway, I believe, is a movie that was not 100% finished. However, in like places like Greece and Turkey, the movie got you know released under the radar on home video. And I, I and I've seen bootlegs of it that are you know shot in scope and they're pan scanned and it's like I would I would kill to like find the elements of that and you know see it properly. I mean I'm sure it's terrible, but it, <laughs> I, I just I mean a title like that. Come on. Seriously, I mean I am so intrigued alone by the title. I got I got to find any and all information I can about it. That's fantastic. Um, um, uh, so, uh, do you have any other grails, or is that, should I move to the next? Um, yeah, I can't. Okay, no, no, no. I mean, a lot, I, I think a lot of the, if you've talked to any film scholar about, you know, the, the, the great unseen films like, uh, Wells' Other Side of the Wind, or Jerry Lewis's Day the Crime Cry, yeah. and, you know, all the, the, tip, the same typical stuff, yeah, I, naturally I want to see all that stuff, too. I, um, the, you know, the, the stuff that I'd like to see that I don't know if I'll ever get to see, sometimes I don't even know it exists. That, yeah, no, you're right. put it that way. That's cool. No, that's, that's fair. Um... So, do you have a favorite Hollywood legend? You know, something maybe that you can or can't verify that you've heard. Oh well, uh, I think my uh, my two favorite uh, Hollywood legends that I, I find myself you know, telling to people on a regular basis. Um, one is, um, and and I think and I think these are both verified by the participants. So it's. Um, so maybe that doesn't make them legends because they're facts. But uh, one is uh, Roger Ebert was interviewing Lee Marvin at his uh, beach house. And he was there. I, I, I think he was still with uh, Michelle Triola at the time, uh, the woman who what, who lived with him for years. And then when he dumped her, she sued him for what was now what is now called alimony. You know, the, the concept that if you live with someone a long enough time, you might as well be man and wife and you're entitled to some assets. Wow. But uh, I don't know if it was her or someone else. But at one point, uh, Lee's dog walks into the room with a pair of panties in its mouth. And his girlfriend is looking and says, those aren't my panties. <laughs> and Lee just, you know, calmly looks at him and says, bad dog. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, and uh, the other one is... I don't recall which specific film it happened with, but uh, Sam Peckinpah was having a very loud, raging argument with uh, his producer over a film that was, you know, by Peckinpah probably going over budget. <laughs> yeah. And there was a hatchet in the room, and as the producer was leaving, Peckinpah picked up the hatchet and flung it at the producer. And it missed him by inches. Uh, it hit the wall, and the producer, you know, amazingly calm, just looked at him and said, 
Some days, Sam, you can't do anything right. <laughs> oh, that's great, too. You know, and, you know, once he got out of the room, he started hyperventilating. Yeah. He was like, he nearly got killed. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. I like that one a lot. That's cool. <laughs> um, okay, do you have a... Oh, no, this is a, this is one I'm very curious about. Um, if you could have lunch with any actor or director not living today, um, who, who might that be? Uh... You know, it's a silly question. Yeah. Uh, probably Rainbow Smith. Oh, cool. That's a really good uh, choice. I had, because uh, she was someone I was desperate to meet when I moved to Los Angeles, and she died way too young and in way too much obscurity. Yeah. And if I would have been able to have lunch with her and just, you know, show her how popular she was despite the fact that she hadn't worked in decades you know i think that would have been a really wonderful afternoon yeah no she is truly uh still pretty underrated and that's that's really unfortunate but she she did a lot of really interesting movies i'm definitely a fan of hers i I, whenever there there are a lot of drive-in starlets who have died young um but i think she's just kind of the most tragic. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm thinking of, like, Claudia Jennings and things, people like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, Claudia, Claudia Jennings died way too young, but in a weird sense, she was kind of at the top of her game yeah. when when she died. Exactly. I mean, she wasn't in the biggest movies. I mean, the last thing she did was Death Sport with David Carradine, and right. that was a hellacious shoot because the director was giving her grief. But, you know, she was working and she was popular. Um, Candace Rawlson... You know, yeah. passed on uh, before she could be located for the DVDs of some of her movies, but she had a reasonably comfortable life in suburbia with uh, a husband and children. Uh, Rainbow had one child who I've been blessed enough to meet, and he's a really uh, talented fella in his own right, but she had a lot of demons and, you know, had you know, had a lot of uh, problems and and uh, and, di- and died broke. Oh. And that's always just, so sad, man. And I just think that you know she could have really used uh, a pick me up. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I recommend anybody that doesn't know who she is uh, should go and look her up and check. She's got a lot of stuff that's available on DVD and even more that's not. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but uh, quite quite the. Um, as you said, starlet and uh, definitely somebody who had a lot of charisma and would bring it to any anything and everything that she did. Um, that's a great pick. Um, do you have a favorite underrated Charles Bronson movie, or if you rather, uh, of just a favorite Charles Bronson movie, either one? Well, um, I would say the, uh, the, mo- the most underrated uh, Charles Bronson movie is uh, his last film, uh, The Indian Runner, directed by uh, Sean Penn. I totally forgot he was in that. Wow. Uh, well, a-, a lot of people did, because first off, a lot of people didn't even see the film. And this, wasn't, and this was before you know, Sean Penn had pissed off the world. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, I mean, you know, it's like nowadays you have people who will not see anything Sean Penn is with, associated with because of his politics. But back then it was just the fact that uh, he somehow uh, had, I think the, the film had gotten sold to uh, MGM and they were in one of their many financial problems. I mean, they've always had financial problems, sad to say. I mean, even since the 70s when Kurt Gregorian first bought them, it's been like one... You know, 
you know, tragedy and farce after another. But uh, the uh, the Indian runner was uh, you know, barely released by MGM, so it you know didn't hit a whole lot of theaters and got you know pretty much sent straight to home video. But it's it's a fascinating you know, film because you know it shows that Penn was a good director. Well, is a good director, dear God. I mean, look, the guy pisses me off enormously, but I got to give credit where credit is due. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he wrote and directed a great film that had a lot of people before they were famous, like uh, David Morse and Viggo Mortensen and uh, Valeria Galino. And, you know, if you're into nudity, you get to see Viggo, you know, naked. <laughs> but um, you got, but Bronson gets to act in this movie. You know, that. I don't know when uh, Jill Ireland contracted uh, breast cancer. Uh, I'm assuming it had to have been like in the mid '80s, because she fought it for a long time before she died. Yeah. And you know that you know that was the love of his life, yeah. and he just would do anything for her. And it, it's about, but it's clearly about that time when the cancer got bad that he sold his soul to Cannon and just did one action film after another and they're entertaining but you know you can clearly see that he's he's doing it for the money yeah you know that he's not really he's not really enjoying it that much he just knows okay this is a dependable paycheck i gotta take care of my wife yeah see that's something people don't think runner he you know he gets to you know do something yeah no, that's very cool. It's so funny. That, it's not funny. It's interesting that you bring up this idea of all his canon stuff and and the sort of behind the scenes. Because I know I personally, I, I never I never thought of him as a check casher, you know. But I mean, he obviously did a lot of those films for the money. I just love him so much that it was always kind of like, well, what's he doing? Oh, some of this stuff is lesser material, et cetera, et cetera. But to think, well, of- I, well he he well he engendered such goodwill with his primary fan base that in a sense. He knew that you know as long as long as I keep you know working with these canon guys, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna have a steady stream of income. Yeah, it's just interesting to think about the behind the scenes and you know what must have been going on in his personal life and 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 how that affected his career and and whatnot. It's it gives him a certain pathos that I think a lot of people probably don't ever really think about. Uh, mm-hmm. That's really cool uh, because uh, as as you can see. Uh, I mean, with with a few exceptions, once Ireland finally died, uh, he, the the acting work really dropped off. Yeah, yeah. Because he did, he didn't need to, and he he kind of lost interest in it. You know, that was you know, it's like that's like that great quote by Paul McCartney: uh, "I lost my girlfriend." Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, I got to go back and rewatch the Indian, Indian Runner. It's been a long time. I think I might have seen it when it first came out on video. I think I was working at a video store at the time, and uh, I rented it then. But I have not seen it since, and I really can barely recall the Bronson performance. So I really, really need to go back and look at this. Um, that's a good pick. Uh, do you have a favorite? I'm very curious about this one. Uh, a f- favorite made-for-TV movie? Oh, um. Um, off, the, off the top of my head, I would say um, uh, my two favorite TV movies are uh, The Night That Panicked America. Oh, good one. Uh, from, uh, I believe, 76. It was a uh, dramatization of Orson Welles' uh, War of the Worlds broadcast with uh, Paul Shinar. Uh, playing Orson Welles, you know, a, a great choice because you know, he's not—he doesn't quite physically look like him or even sound like him, but he has that beautiful voice that most people know from Scarface. 
There is no lying in you, Tony Montana. <laughs> uh, that uh, and it, it kind of, you know, it's still you know a TV movie standard, but you're seeing, uh, you know, uh, what it might have been like for ordinary people listening to War of the Worlds and you know getting, you know, you know not paying close attention. Uh, the other one is uh, Barbarians at the Gate, which, oh. I mean, it's an HBO TV movie, yeah. so it's got, you know, you know, the standards of most theatrical films, so maybe that doesn't count, but... No, no, that counts. It, 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 but it is, such, it is such a hilarious film about an unlikely, hilarious topic. You know, I mean, the, 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 the bidding war for RJR Nabisco... Uh, in the 80s does not sound like comedy material and in fact you know it's it's not it's not funny because you know when that happened you know hundreds of thousands of people were put out of work and uh, but it, it demonstrates the fact that you know this the the absolute greed and insane amounts of money that were being thrown around for this you have to laugh you know that it, it's uh, you know, history plays first as tragedy and second as farce. And it also has one of my favorite lines ever when uh, James Garner is he's trying to explain to one of uh, the guys at Nabisco who is basically going to lose his job if the merger, if uh, the acquisition goes through, but he's trying to entice him with a huge severance. And he tells him, we're not talking about fuck you, money. We're talking fuck everybody, money. <laughs> That's a great line. I don't. I don't think I've ever seen that one. That's another one that I remember from my video store days being very popular when it came out. I really yeah, James also starring Jonathan Price as a uh, corporate raider uh, Henry Kravis and J- and James Garner, right? Is he and James Garner uh, along with uh, Peter Riegert from Animal House, oh. uh, uh, Joanna Cassidy, and uh, Fred Dalton Thompson. Fred Dalton Thompson, very nice. Uh, it's that you know. It, he is not much of a politician, and he was a terrible presidential candidate. But I'll watch anything that Fred Dalton Thompson acts in. I agree. He he always brings it. There's not a performance, and it's always supporting or whatever. But he always, you know, doesn't doesn't disappoint. We'll say that. Yeah, just just I mean, his his little thing in in Die Hard Two is those planes aren't going to be landing. They're going to be crashing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he could deliver, uh, you know, a line like that like almost nobody else. You know, he really gets it. Um, I was going to say, Riegert. I mean, I love Riegert. Are you a fan of Chili Scenes of Winter, just out of curiosity? Uh, well, that that's a gap in my, my film viewing. I okay. have not gotten to see Chili Scenes of Winter. Um, mm. but, I'd just you know, be curious. He's really good. In the, I just, it was just on cable recently. I showed my wife, and, and I just uh, he's a guy that people, between local hero and a couple other performances, I feel like he gets really overlooked, and uh, so I was just curious. Um, but I was going to ask you, uh, the, the Night That Panicked America is one I just dis- discovered, quote-unquote, for myself, I think in the past six months. I'd never heard of that film. I came across it. Uh, I still haven't seen it. Uh, I, I acquired a copy of it, and I've yet Well, to- it's very difficult to see yeah. the great uh, TV movies. Uh, That's that- what- uh, cable is just gone down the tubes. The, the, I mean, everybody likes to make the joke that there's you know 500 channels and nothing on, but <laughs> it's the truth because you would think with all of these channels that there'd be room for different kinds of programming. But what ends up happening is that there's only four or five companies that own all 500 channels, and because they all just they. They're, 
tend to have one that makes the most money and then one that makes less money but has more solid followings. They want all of them to make money, and the easiest way to do that is to copy what the other guy is doing. And that's why all the cable channels are doing crappy reality shows and reruns of cop shows, and in the middle of the night, they're all running infomercials. Yeah. You know, that, that, and you, you would think there'd be room on one of these for classic TV movies. And again, since there are few stations left that aren't controlled by one of uh, the, the six major, the five major networks, um, a lot of that a lot of the stations that would have run you know, TV movies in the afternoon or on Saturday afternoons aren't running them anymore. They're running you know, crappy first-run reality shows and infomercials. Yeah, you know, it's really sad because there was so much talent in, in the 70s and 80s in, involved in those TV productions, and so many great mm-hmm. stories were told, and I feel like that's completely gone, and I don't know if it'll come back again. You know, it's Well, it was uh, when, when, uh, when Michael Eisner started uh, the ABC Movie of the Week in the 70s, it was kind of a nice economic way of storytelling. You, know, you had 90 minutes, or really you had uh, 74 minutes plus commercials to tell a compelling story, and sure, a lot of them are kind of trite and campy, but then you get something really economical and solid like Steven Spielberg's Duel, yeah. or uh, the, uh, well, one of the nice things about the Warner Archive program, yeah. you know, the Burn On Demand DVDs, is that they are dipping heavily into their TV movie stash, and yeah. so you're getting some some of the better TV movies of that time, like Bad Ronald yeah. or Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. I was just going to say both of those are great releases. Yeah, or, or Sybil or, yeah. or uh, The Deadly Tower with uh, Kurt Russell. As, uh, I love Charles, that movie. Uh, Starkweather. Um, you know, so I'm you know, with 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 hope. You know, maybe the, the other studios that are doing burn on demand DVDs will look at this and start dipping into their uh, stash of. Uh, TV movies. Yeah, um, I you know, like I, I mean, I want I want Universal to put out Killdozer so that I can have my big movie night where Killdozer goes up against the car. Yes, I love both those films, especially the car. The car is just that's one. I feel like as much as it's out there, you know, and the DVDs available, still a lot of people haven't seen it. And uh, I just think it's fantastic. Another fantastic little movie that Killdozer in the car. That's a great double feature. Um, do you, are you a fan of uh, disaster films at all? Do you have a favorite disaster film? Mm, yeah, not the biggest uh, disaster movie fan. That's cool. um, uh, I, I mean, I kind of had to get... Uh, I, I had to be dragged kicking and screaming by uh, Andy Zacks to uh, see the Poseidon Adventure, but I am glad that I did. Uh, that, uh, the, the Poseidon Adventure is, uh, I'd, I'd have to say that's my, my favorite disaster film. If nothing else, for, you know, the, when, when the kid says, nowhere is the ship's hull thinner. <laughs> It's like, okay, let's let's put uh, the entire machine of the gods in this kid's hand. (laughs) I totally missed that line. I gotta say, I've seen it several times, but I mean, the fact that it came from that kid for whatever reason Mm -hmm. passed me by. That's a great bit. Um, Do you have a favorite film reference book or series of books? 
Yeah, uh, quite a few. Uh, the original Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film by Michael Weldon. Yes. Uh, the the Roger Ebert Movie Home Companion. Uh, I, I, I swear by that. Uh, see, uh, re- uh, not not quite not quite a reference book, but. Uh, the, the two the two Peter Biskin books, uh, Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and Down and Dirty Pictures, you know, for all the you know inside stories of uh, the seventies and nineties uh, filmmaking movements. Um, uh, Mark, Mark Harris's uh, book, Pictures at a Revolution, which I think is going to be adapted into a documentary now, with, which uh, excites me. Yeah, any film related book that you like, I'd love to hear. It doesn't have to be a reference book at all. Uh, yeah, the, um, I think uh, uh, Sidney Lumet's uh, making movies. You know, kind of just you know, it's it's a pro just talking about the process. Uh, the, the Complete Filmmaker by Jerry Lewis oh. is a really great read. I, I, uh, I mean, you, 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 everybody likes to treat Jerry Lewis as a punchline, but the, the man was no fool. Uh, I think he's a brilliant he knew, filmmaker. He knew construct. It's a very hard book to come by, but uh, uh-huh. if you can come by it, um, it's 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 well worth reading. I mean, you'll you'll get some really great insights into you know comedy and staging and directing, and you know there there's a lot there's a lot to be learned uh, fr- uh, from the, the Schlemiel. He is. I think he's totally underrated as a as a. I mean, I've recently watched. I think all the stuff that uh, Paramount put out on DVD uh, with my son, I, I got him started, he's 11 years old, I got him started on Jerry Lewis, and he loves him. And just in rewatching all those films, you come across stuff like The Ladies' Man, and you look at the, not only is it a great technical feat, all that he accomplished with that film, but it's just a really good movie. Like, he just does, he's such a fantastic comic filmmaker. But like you said, very intelligent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, and you know, with, with an ego the size of five football fields, <laughs> but but very intelligent. Yeah. Um, I, what's the story now? I was trying to explain this to my son on, on the bellboy. Now he inv- did, I know he claims to have invented video tap, but what's the? Do you know the actual story? I mean, they, I know they had it for the first time on the set of the bellboy, but I don't know what the story is exactly. Um. I haven't really researched that, so I don't know whether it's truth or hyperbole. Yeah. But uh, it's considering all of the other concepts that uh, Jerry came up with, I would not rule out the possibility that it is truth. Yeah, that's cool. That's right. Cool. Because well, because the bellboy had to be done very fast because. Uh, the, the, the story of the bellboy is that uh, he had already shot Cinderella for Paramount, and they want they were originally going to release it that summer, and then Paramount decided, well, we want to put this is kind of better as a Christmas movie, but now we need something for we need something for the summer, and he said, all right, I'm going to run down to Florida and I'm going to knock this thing out. So. Uh, you know, because production, you know, it's not like today where you know you get like a year and a half to make a big summer tentpole movie. You, know, you you shot in January and you were in theaters by like uh, you know July. You know, you had to work. So so he had to get this thing done and done fast. So he probably would have thought of, well, hey, what if I just had video assist? That would cut the time of me having to look at rushes. I would know which takes are the best, and I you know, could uh, eliminate a step. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, it really... It, it, sorry. It, you know, it, 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 it seems plausible. <laughs> well, that's a, great, um, that's a great book that I need to try and find because I, I've come to respect him more and more uh, in the past couple of years than I had previously. So, And he's somebody I feel like everybody should at least look at the films because most of them, I, I, they've, they've sadly gone out of print, some of them, of the Paramount stuff. but And some of them still never got uh, a DVD release. I mean, they, they covered the bulk of them, but there's still a few like uh, Rockabye Baby oh, yeah. and The Sad Sack and Visit to a Small Planet that are, are still not available. Yeah, did uh, The Geisha Boy, that came out. Or didn't it? Uh, I, I believe it did, yeah. Okay, all right. And I know that uh, Warner's archives on the, that topic just put out Cracking Up and uh, Which Way to the Front. Which yeah, is, which uh, is cool. Cracking Up, um, you, when you're what? Uh, cracking Up is a movie I like, but it falls under that category of movies that will cause you to lose friendships. <laughs> You know, that, that if I rec- if I recommend that movie on this podcast, there are going to be people who are going to send you hate mail for years. Well, you know, I'd, I'd be right behind you on that one, Mark, because I'm a I'm a big fan of that movie. But you're right; it is an odd, to say the least, an yes, odd film. It's it's, it, it's not funny, haha. It's funny, uh oh. <laughs> That's really uh, to, well to borrow put. from the uh, Animaniacs uh, Jerry Lewis encounter. <laughs> that is really well put. Yeah, I mean that's that's that's. A, I mean it's true that it could be the kind of movie that would make somebody uh, question your taste in film, perhaps. But mm-hmm. it's funny because I brought it up to a couple people, and they just happened to be people in the, the situations I was in where they had seen the movie and immediately started. Uh, freaking out about how much they liked it remembering the waitress in in mm-hmm. you know and whatnot and that seems to be one that people always remember and that's something that's big in our house too is is the waitress's lines from cracking up are pretty uh, great. The, the waitress and i believe uh, jolly fats we hawking <laughs> yes yes i'm really excited for that dvd to come out but um Anyway, Mark, I'm sorry. I've, I've taken quite a bit of your time. I really really appreciate you uh talking to me. Um thank you so much. Uh, I, uh, I, I'll, I'll let you know when this, when this posts, if that's, if that's cool. Okay. Is that, is that, uh, are we good or is that okay? Um, sounds like it. I mean, unless you got any other questions. That's all I, that's all I had. So like, I'm, I'm sort of out at this point. Uh, okay. But, but I really, I, and also I'm looking at the counter and we're an hour and 23 minutes. And I'm like, wow, I, I didn't want to And this suck. is supposed to be an hour long program. Oh, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to go uncut. This will go, this thing goes as long as it goes. So uh, an hour and 20 minutes or an hour and 22 minutes, whatever it is, we'll, the whole thing will post. You know? Okay. Yeah. No, people I mean, want to hear. I, it. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to be going longer than uh, Josh Olson did because you know Josh Olson deserves uh, an hour and a half. I, who, who the hell am I? Well, you know, I, Mark, it's been a great conversation actually, and this has been a lot of fun, and I was looking forward to. Uh, Although I won't read your fucking script either. <laughs> that's totally fine. I don't have one currently, so. But um, I was going to say Josh. Josh only went, I think, about forty minutes. Um, so he's been the shortest interview that I've done thus far. Uh, so this is, um, I think the Alan Arkish one I did last week was about an hour and 10 or so, or maybe a little longer. So this might be the, the close to the longest. No, you know what? The Lars Nelson interview was almost this long too. Um, so 
This is great. I mean, I, I just think it's a fascinating conversation. Like I said, when I heard your commentary, I was like, this is the guy I want to talk to, and I know that people want to hear what he has to say, and that's exactly what you gave me, and I really, really appreciate it. You know? You're all good. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay. Bye-bye, Mark. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. You can find The Gentleman at ggtmc.com. You can call The Gentleman at 206-666-5207. And you can email The Gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com.